Welcome back to It Doesn't Look Good. I'm your host, Tim. In last week's episode, I started telling you mine and Caitlin's story. We covered her diagnosis, first surgery, emotions surrounding the circumstances, and the episode ended just as her second surgery was getting started. If you haven't listened to the first part of the story yet, stop this one and go listen to it now. We'll be right here when you get back. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and we end the episode discussing Caitlin's legacy and how our hope is found in Christ. And again, to, to touch back on the being thankful for the family and the friends that we have and the church body that we get to be a part of, just crowding around us, even though we're in Tulsa four hours from home, they drove and met us to be with us in the waiting room just to wait for her. They would call every hour or every two hours. They, you know, they, they asked for a little leeway, but the, the technician would always call us and let us know, hey, Dr. Griff is, you know, just wanted to let you know everything's going as planned right now. Um, no hiccups. We still got, you know, hopefully another six hours and then we'll be done sure how long did Um, that go on for so that first one i feel like again i'm the i'm a little foggy on how long it was but i do remember it was like four hours longer than what it was supposed to be oh wow yeah so as time goes on you become even with constant updates like you just become more and more anxious in in the waiting just like there's more chance for something to go wrong or there's or more? Or you just, you just feel like, why is it taking so long? Did something go wrong? Right. And they're having to fix it. And Wouldn't that be in the updates, though? Or Yeah, it, I mean, you know, but that doesn't. But I'm saying, I'm trying to say, is, is this like irrationality? Is that part of it? Like, yeah, just like I, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, it's at even, here's the thing, with cancer nothing is routine i feel like and and i feel like the doctor would have said that yeah you know because here he is this surgeon who this was beyond this was beyond anything that the surgeon at the first facility could have done and he's able to do it he's saying like, he can i can do it 100 percent right. certain i can do it i'm one of maybe two or three other surgeons in the united states that would say that yeah and I can confidently say that. Wow. And even he's saying, hey, listen, it's going to take X amount of time, maybe more than that, because I don't know exactly what's going on in there. I'm going to have to figure it out. Almost like a mechanic would have to figure out what's going on with a car. Sure. Like you just have to get in under the hood and trial and error until you find the problem. Well, for him, he has to get in there and trial and error until he's able to remove every bit of the tumor especially if you're not searching right so (laughs) so we finally get the call surgery's done you can come down doctor is going to meet with you and let you know kind of everything that happened what we did blah 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 so we get down there and he explains that and again this is like we're past midnight she had been in there since super duper early in the morning so i mean we're at at least you know 12 hours of waiting 
and so Which is we, crazy to think about a, sur- a person, a surgeon working for that long. Yeah, so I, yeah, like hand hand eye coordination, right. precision. So I actually asked him that question. I was like, "Hey, no lunch, huh?" And he said that he would take breaks and go look at the CT scans and and reference those right. sometimes. Well, when he would reference those, he would eat peanut butter, and he he leaned in real close and whispered, "Tell you a little secret, peanut butter." So there you go. I guess hmm. if you ever need to do surgery, eat peanut butter. There's any surgeons out there that are <laughs> trying to figure out how to eat. So, um, you know, he lets us know he was able to remove, I think it was 95% of the tumor. He had to remove her uterus, her ovaries, uh, and a very large portion of her colon. She had an ostomy that we, you know, were hoping would be temporary and uh, eventually would be able to um, remove it. So that's a that's an immediate life change right there, right? That's Absolutely, like a bag yeah. that hangs on the outside mm-hmm. of you. Yes. And so we, you know, we were just grateful that he was able to remove as much as he was. So fast forward a and little what, bit. What does 95% look like in... A watermelon-sized tumor. Uh, he told us that if you can imagine a tumor that was the size of a small watermelon that he removed from her abdomen. And what? so it's easy to rejoice, obviously, over a 95% like success rate. You know, I feel like you break less than 95% of your bones. That's good. You know, like medically speaking, 95% is good. What do... What's the situation or what kind of feelings do you have when there is still that 5% lingering around? Or, like, um, is it a cloud over your head yeah. or is it you just, like, ignore it or what? So, no, absolutely not. I wouldn't say it was a cloud, though. That night, uh, you know, we're sitting in that room talking to him, and it was all I could do not to hug the guy and just, yeah. like, cry on his shoulder because of the thankfulness that I had that he was there. And, you know, I talked about earlier the emotion of going through, hey, like, what are you doing, God? We're here giving our lives to you, and this happens. Well, in this moment, it was the exact opposite. I could look at this man as a physical manifestation of God's goodness. It was so overwhelming to know that, hey, I'm going to use doctors and medicine and people in your lives for the emotional side of it, but doctors and medicine for the medical side of it to deliver you from evil, essentially from the difficult stuff in life. Like I'm here, I am good, I love you, I'm gonna take care of you. And I could look at this man and see that as a physical representation, like I said. So I was just over the moon, elated, just so happy. There was a moment after the conversation when everybody, you know, was kind of moving away from that room. And I just like buckled on this nurse's station. Of course, it's empty because it's midnight. And I just fall on it and sobbed. Just being thankful that you know, I knew it wasn't over, but it was like, it felt so good to know that 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 much of that cancer was out of her body. Sure. 
And so, you know, of course, everybody goes to their room. I go to her recovery room and I just sit in her recovery room as she's got tubes and everything coming out of her face. And Mm -hmm. she's obviously not conscious. Um, And it's like 3 a.m. before I finally fall asleep in the chair, just staring at her and, and thanking God that it was that that portion of it was over. But it wasn't over she actually ended up having to have a second surgery within probably two or three weeks of the first one and at that point it was kind of a surprise to us basically long story short her bowel was leaking internally so they had to go and repair it sure and at this point you know we weren't expecting it so all of our friends and family had left it was just me and her mom at the treatment center and they had to do a you know a second surgery I was actually out getting us dinner when I got the phone call. Hey, they're taking her back for surgery. So I had to rush back. Yeah. And, and so it was just me and her mom sitting in that waiting room, watching TV and playing cards and trying to not think about it. You know, this is the third time around. Then I'll say this. It doesn't get any easier on the third time as yeah. it was on the first time. Like every single time they go back there, it was super hard. And so I was doing everything I could do not to crack because I was seeing her mom crack. And so I was trying to go, hey, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna get through it. We're gonna be good. She's gonna be fine. Again, this was an, another one that was supposed to be like four hours. They were gonna open her up, find the perforated vowel, a bowel and, and repair it and then close her back up we'd be in recovery again sure well he couldn't find it and so it took an extra two or three hours and so four hours rolls around and we hadn't heard anything again since the last update and we're just like waiting on bated breath for an update and so finally he comes in they or they tell us he's he's ready to talk to us and so he tells us that he couldn't he couldn't find it and then just like a sixth sense he Almost like a like he he said he smelled it, and to this day I'm not sure if he means literally smelled it or like you know he was making a reference to like a hound dog smells sure. its prey. Sure, but so he fa- just, ended up finding it. He found Surgery's it. Over. Six cents. Found it. Stitched it up. Fixed it. Closed her up. Good as new. Back in recovery. So they're still pushing chemo for her to to get rid of the last five percent she's still pushing against that doesn't feel like she can do it ultimately we ended up opting against chemo and she she wanted she had found a more of a natural path kind of homeopathic direction so what does that look like as a husband or like a leader of your household when you see doctors with a bunch of statistics in your face or are advising against something and you have to check that against yourself against the you know it's not being your own body against you know what the holy spirit's telling you specifically like how how does it all mesh together and how is that as a husband and um, just a Christian, like how, how do you balance, how was that, how difficult was that to balance a bit? Like, here's what I think we should do, but also this is your own body, but sure. also this is what the doctors are saying. Sure. So I struggled with that. Absolutely. One of the reasons that she had decided to do that over the chemo is because they said even with chemo, if they get it all and she were to go into remission, 100%, no doubt in our mind, this is coming back regardless. And that was that 5%. Yes. Yeah, and gotcha. so so she, 
was kind of like, well, why would I put myself through that just horrible pain, horrible treatment plan of chemo if it's not even going to work sure. to heal me? It's just going to give me more days. A couple months. Yeah, yeah, like what's the point of going through all of that if, if it's just going to come suck. back? Sure, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, again, I'm still of the mindset that chemo is our best defense against cancer as a society. This is what millions and millions of dollars has been spent on cancer research and chemo development and all of this stuff. So we, you know, we've had these conversations and I can remember this specific point when my mind and my heart changed. We were in her parents' living room and she was crying on the couch talking about not being able to tolerate chemotherapy and just she really feels led to do this other treatment and at that point it became clear to me that that was what needed to happen and you know there are times not now but at the time I was thinking will I regret any decision that I make will I regret not pushing chemo more will I regret if we did chemo would I regret having her do chemo or whatever I can say that I do not regret any decision that we made I do regret stuff uh, which I'll get into in a in a little bit but more of a decision that I made than this ultimately what it came down to was yes this is Caitlin's body she is my wife I want the best for her, and I feel like if the best for her is allowing her to make this decision and have what could be a shorter life but a fuller one based on our circumstances, sure, that's what needs to happen. And that's not to say that I didn't have hope in the path that she chose because I definitely did there you know she had showed me studies of these different treatments that this particular facility was administering and success rates and all of this stuff and we don't have to get into all of that ultimately we ended up at this treatment center in California that was more of a homeopathic type treatment center and they and they did they did administer some chemo it was a low dose chemo and they did it with these other forms of treatment that aren't technically drugs so it's more mild and easier on the body so she did that stuff um so she spent some time in california and then there was a time when she was able to leave the treatment center in California. She had to stay out there when she was under treatment. So there were several months when I wasn't able to stay because I would have to come home and work and I would just go visit for, you know, a week or two at a time or a week at a time, a, a few times while she was out there. And so she got to come home, she flew home and then we went on vacation. This was in May of 2018 so we went on vacation and after vacation she we were on our way home and we were at dinner and she was saying that she really feels like she needs to be more aggressive with her treatment there was another doctor at the the facility the treatment facility that 
had a more aggressive approach. She wanted mm-hmm. to change to that doctor. She just felt it in her spirit that she needed sure. to take more, more aggressive approach. So when she went back out there, she did change. And it was one of those things where now she really had to be out there for like three months. Right. So this is thousands of miles away from home, yes. living out of a hotel, yep. going back and forth between the treatment center and your hotel. Right. And all, so all while just being her and her mom. Yes. So her mom her mom went out there. I I drove her out there in our car so that they would have a car to get around in. Again, I had to work. We were blessed that her mom was able to take time away from the she ran a daycare at the time and stayed with her for three months in that hotel. And again, take away the emotional part, that's a ta- that's taxing yes, physically. Yeah. So her, her mom, again, if her dad's a rock star in the research sense, her mom's a rock star in the sense that just being a mom caretaker. Like, yeah. Like just incredible at loving her well and doing what she needed and dealing with her grouchiness when she would get grouchy or just being able to wash her clothes and drive her to her appointments and take her where she needed to go all while I had to work so that I could pay bills for like our house and and all of that stuff yeah so her mom was there and they you know they lived in that hotel for three months and I would visit a week at a time and then come back home work and then try to get back out. So then in August, it was time for her to come home for, it was supposed to be two weeks, and then we were gonna drive her back out there for more treatment. And she came home in August, and she was here for probably a week, maybe towards the end of the the two weeks, but she, got to where she couldn't hold anything down. She would eat and it would come up. And this was happening as we were leaving California. She just she wasn't doing super great when we were leaving, but it just worsened and worsened. Bad enough that she ended up in the ER here in town, which is where she was diagnosed. Again, just to show the graciousness of God, one of my best friends, Jason, is a pharmacist at Baptist, and he works nights every other week. And just it just so happened that every time we ended up in the ER, he was there and would take good care of us and check on us frequently. And sure. So your local hospital. Yes. You had a friend. Yeah. Yeah. So again, a, a friend from church. And so she ends up in a room at Baptist. And for two weeks, the goal was to get her well enough to go back to California. And it just progressed so much so that they didn't recommend, like they just kept saying, we can't recommend her making the trip we think that she might get out there it could get worse and then you know this is the california facility or this is this back is here? this is baptist gotcha um and then if it did get if it did get or you know if the worst were to happen she'd be so far from home You're right um so the new plan was to do um chemo treatment but modified if 
if we could find a doctor that would work with us that would do something more similar to what she was doing out in California. Yeah, low dose. Something that would match our strength level. Yes. And so we met a doctor at St. Vincent. He was a, a very, very great doctor, very nice guy who was very willing to work with her. He, he said, uh, I, I can remember him saying, it's very hard for us as doctors, oncologists, it's very hard for oncologists as doctors to give up on a patient. If they're willing to fight, we're willing to f- fight with them any way that they're willing to right. fight. So he was just very gracious and, and very helpful. And so we moved her from Baptist to St. Vincent. And then the goal became to get her well enough to do that treatment. So right. instead of getting her well enough to go back to California and do treatment, now it was get her well enough to go to, or just to do the treatment at St. Vincent. They said we could administer the treatment here. She can go home when she's, you know, stay in the hospital for a few days, go home and then come back the next week or whatever to do it. So let's stop right here and see like what, where are your emotions at this point? Like where are your mental thoughts um, between you and her? Um, Just like, is this, is this feel like the beginning of the end or are you still filled with hope? Um, is it, is it difficult to compromise a lofty goal for a, just a small one, um, saying, Hey, we had this lofty goal of doing this, all this amazing treatment in California to like, Hey, let's just get her well to go to California to like, Hey, let's just get her to where she can get to Vincent. Is that, um, does that feel like, like something's dwindling or checking your spirit or does that feel like, Hey, there's still hope this is this is maybe a definition of fighting the good fight you don't think you know you don't think of it as a physical fight usually you think of it as a spiritual warfare but um you're actually fighting a physical battle day in day out so like kind of like where were you guys mentally physically spiritually in this in this this point in the story yeah so i think you know for me when she was in baptist i feel like i wouldn't i wouldn't say that i didn't have hope but that was probably the first time that I had thought, okay, this could go the other way. Not to think, not to say that I never thought that before that, but it was the first time that I thought it in the sense that, like you said, this we could be approaching the end of the fight mm-hmm. without the income, without the outcome that we wanted. You know, because immediately when you hear cancer. Yeah. You, you think that, but there's always that hope. And that's not to say that we didn't have hope still. Right. Because I feel like every step of the way, we had to have hope, or it would have ended months before that. Sure. So, yeah, I, I, I think that Baptist was the, the first first place that I probably thought, you know, this could be the end. But you have to, you have to still try. You still you have to still fight. And I would have never, ever stopped fighting. If she were here today and still fighting, I would do, I would be doing everything, whatever it took to help her do that. So when we got to St. Vincent, it just went downhill day after day. And that was really the first time that I kind of accepted that we were approaching the end. But just to give you 
an idea of what I mean when I say the first time I accepted and if she were still here, I would be fighting and all of the stuff that I just said, let me explain it like this. When we were staying there, I would stay a night, her mom would stay a night and her dad would stay a night and we would rotate so that we would have one night to stay there because it was, you didn't sleep much when you were there. She constantly needed different things throughout the night. She would, there were constantly nurses coming in administering pain meds and this, that, and the other thing. So we would stay one night and then have two nights off to kind of recover from that and then stay a night. So I was coming in for my night to stay with her and I was bringing food in. And when I walked in the door, you couldn't see the bed because it was kind of a hallway and then it would open up into the room. And so you open the door and I'm in the hallway there. And then all you could see were the chairs that her mom and her dad and her grandma were sitting in. And as soon as I opened the door, I could tell that the atmosphere, the air, the mood was different than it had been Yeah. without even saying a word I could just sense it and so I walked in and I set the food down on the counter and I walked around the corner to where I could see Caitlin and she just kind of smiled at me and asked you know told me I need to talk to you and so I sat down and that's when she told me that she was gonna go into hospice which if you don't know hospice is basically end of life care What can we do to make you comfortable, but we're not going to treat anything? So this is just an acceptance of this is the end of my life. So when she told me that it was, that was the, the, at that moment was when I said, okay, this is it. And had that moment never came, we would have kept that cycle one on two off and happily done it for as long as it took so were you ready for that moment like were you mentally i mean not that any one person could probably prepare for that but you feel like yeah do you feel like you were prepared for that moment um you know you you looking back i mean yeah so i i would say you know i said baptist was kind of the first place that i thought that maybe this is not gonna that it's word we're nearing the end. So you kind of prepare yourself for, for that, but it's just one of those things where I, you're not ready for it no matter what. Um, you may prepare yourself for it in a sense, but you don't, I don't know how to explain it. You just, you you may expect it, but you're, you're not ready no matter what you do to prepare yourself. So when she said it, you know, there was this part of me that for the last year and a half, I'm trying to be strong, trying not to cry often in front of her. I tried to keep it very strong for her. And so she tells me and I don't show as much emotion as she wanted me to. And so she, why aren't you crying? I feel like you should cry more. And (laughs) I was like, you don't understand. Like I'm going to sob later. And so 
you know, we have this this conversation. It's very deep and difficult and hard and Just heartfelt. The two of you. Well, her her parents and, and grandma were in the room, but she had already talked to them because they had been there when sure. she yeah. finally made the decision. And so, I we I did cry with her there. And got to that moment, and it was you know probably five ten minutes there of just having that moment and then it quieted down and her mom started to kind of prepare the food for everyone and Caitlin got quiet and I could tell she was thinking and I was still sitting on the bed and holding her hand and she kind of turned and looked at me and out of nowhere just said I want my name tattooed on you and I was like you are trying to brand me. I see how this is going to go from here on out. So, you know, it became light again, even in the the midst of that, what felt like darkest moment, you know, just to, again, point to the grace of God, giving us little moments to get us through the valley. So fast forward, we come home and she's in hospice care. And from there on out, there would be probably more of those moments like I had mentioned earlier during that first week after her diagnosis of just intimate moments between her and I, and then between her and her friends and her and family members. And just like this month of, because it was September now, and she passed away on September 28th. But just this month of just little memories, basically, that I will cherish and her family will cherish and our friends will cherish. And I feel like one of the the questions, and I mentioned regret earlier, that people often want to know about different things or your life or, you know, you're, you're 80 years old. Well, do you have any regrets or in difficult situations, do you regret anything? And the only real regret that I have in this whole situation, this whole year and a half, would be one night they planned a worship night for her and some dear ladies, friends of hers, that would come. They set up a piano, a keyboard in our living room, and and we had like a live worship night. And I excused myself to the back to just... It was all women. It was all women. Gotcha. All women. I excused myself to the back. I told myself that I was leaving because it was all women. And if I had stayed, I would have been the only guy except for her dad who sat in the kitchen just to be a part of it. But I told myself that "Eh, it's for women. I'm going to disappear. And had it been any other situation, Caitlin would have wanted me to disappear she you know she would have kicked me out hey it's me and a bunch of girls could get out of yeah. here you know I, I convinced myself that I was I was not gonna be in there because it was it was for girls so it finished everyone left and I came out of the room in the back and I came and I sat next to her in the recliner she was in the recliner and I was sitting in one of our kitchen chairs and she asked me where I had been, and I told her, you know, I was in the back. I figured it was for you and the ladies. And she she said, well, I looked for you. I, I wanted you to be here with me. And she was not physically capable of getting up and coming to find me. And so that 
hurt a lot because, you know, she's nearing the end of her life and here I am sitting in the back and I can honestly say today that I was back there not because it was for women, but because it was going to be a spiritually and emotionally very taxing thing. I ran from it because I was not able to deal with it. And so I escaped that emotion, but it was at the expense of my wife's feelings. And so that is probably the biggest thing that I would regret through this whole thing is just, it was just an hour, you know, there were months when I wasn't with her in California because I couldn't be, but that's the difference is I could have been there. And instead I I ran from that hurt and that pain and, and she paid for it. So I asked her, you know, please forgive me. I will always be there from here on out. I will not miss a worship session or I won't miss anything. I will always be by your side. And so, and I was. And so from there, she, you know, we, we talked a little more. She said, she forgave me, thankfully. And, (laughs) and she said that she thought that it was time for us to start having the small conversations. And I was like, okay, what, what do you mean? And so she said, you know, whether or not you get remarried. And I said, I don't think that you, that's not, not a small conversation but okay what do you think and she told me that she my initial thought is yes I want you to be remarried because I think you'll make the the best father so again now the first time I'm about to sob because I feel bad for not being there for her and now I'm about to cry because she's loving me so well then you know she she got tired and she was done talking and So she just wanted to worship the same playlist that we would play in the hospital after all of her surgeries and during her recovery was playing on the TV and she just started to worship. And it was, I think a Carrie Job is who sings it, but it's just called, I believe in you. And it's just over and over again. I believe in you. I believe you. You're the God of miracles. And so she just puts her hand up and she's worshiping and singing the song in this little mousy voice because she's so withered at this point. And at one point, she just says, all right, I'm ready for bed, and tries to stand up. And again, she was physically unable to come get me earlier, so now she's not going to be able to walk to go to bed. So I had to physically carry her into the room and lay her in the bed. And by this point, I'm just, I'm broken. And um, Tracy notices and just, like kind of gives me that nod of understanding that each one of us had done to all of the family members at some point in time or another just that that nod that says all right I got it you you go and do what you need to do and so I did I left the room and you Charles not you the listener but Charles happened to be there at this point in time just kind of sitting on the couch we constantly had friends and family in our house during that entire month people bringing food and visiting and just loving her and loving me and loving the family and so I left the room and I came down the hallway and I grabbed Charles and we went to the garage 
and probably for the first time in that entire year and a half, I just could not contain any of my emotion. And all I could say was, I'm not ready. And I cried for probably 10 minutes and you held me and then I got it together and we came inside and I went back to the room. <laughs> she asked me where I had been again and I told her that I just couldn't, I couldn't keep it together and I had to leave so that I could, so that I could cry. And <laughs> she said, well, now I'm worried about you. <laughs> and I just, I just said, you know, don't worry about me. The Lord's dealing with me. You just get some sleep. You get some rest. And I prayed with her. And I sat with her while she slept. And that was probably the most important night of the entire year and a half for me. Because... It showed me her faith, the hope that she had in Christ, and her ability to love other people in such a way that it leaves a legacy. And so that is probably the reason why I feel the pull and the draw and the, like, Holy Spirit really nudging me to start Hope Against Hope and the charity for helping families with terminal illness and doing this to share with people uh, situations that are tough, but that even though they're tough, we have ultimate hope in Christ, that even though we're going to go through some valleys, that He is good no matter what, and that He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words and that he places people in our lives to care for us and to walk headlong into those valleys with us and to be there and to do life with us so that when we need them the most they come through and it's just example of his character so I learned a lot about myself over that year and a half and how I deal with grief and anxiety and all of that. And um, I'm not the best at dealing with it. I, you know, I'm just a human being, but I, I learned a lot about that. And I learned a lot about Caitlin and she really does have a legacy. And um, I hope that that you know, I hope that it comes through on this and in, in what we do with Hope Against Hope. So I think it will. I think that, you know, I think when you hear, you know, verses like the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, you can replace that with certain things like can this cancer came to kill, steal, and destroy. And you hear 
you know, cancer, this this type of disease and this type of um, illness, where it implements and it if it, it it crawls into a family and sits there, and then you hear like it's it creates opportunities for someone to be all kinds of things selfish you know you have somebody being focused on one person it's easy to feel sorry for yourself and everything but to hear you know days away from being taken to hear a phrase like i'm worried about you when you're the focus of all this you know if that doesn't speak to strength hope and love and letting you know that that they're the victory no matter what happened physically, the victory was still here on this side. I think that's that's a great legacy, and I think that's I think that was conveyed in your story here today. Just to say one last thing, you know, this is just a small portion of uh, the story. There's so much of it on on Facebook, on the Ho- Hope Against Hope page which is the the name of the nonprofit that I'm starting and it is it is there's so much there that that was left out today just for the you know sake of time but she even though she she passed away like I said the most important thing I think is the legacy that she left and there are so many people that I, I know already have been touched by her story and that have had their their faith strengthened by her story. And my prayer is that through Hope Against Hope, through It Doesn't Look Good, it would continue to touch, you know, touch people's lives and that they would continue to be encouraged and their their faith strengthened through that. Well, that concludes the telling of my story. But it's not the conclusion of the overall story, the story of hope. Hope in moments where it just doesn't look good. Tune in next week to hear from someone else who's experienced that kind of hope. And before we go, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Charles for guest hosting for me. Be sure to catch him telling his story in a few weeks. If you haven't already, subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please rate us so that other people can find us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.